Welcome to the final Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast 2015 related to the FG Twitter debate on Tuesday the 29th of December 2015 entitled Frontline IBS and Approach to Treatment Pathways. My name is Dr. Philip Smith. I'm the training editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and a registrar in London. And I am delighted to introduce our Frontline Gastroenterology Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Anthony Manuel. Dr. Emanuel obtained his medical degree from London University. He is a senior lecturer in neurogastroenterology at University College London and a consultant gastroenterologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery at Queen Square and the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in Stanmore. Prior to this, he was a senior lecturer at Imperial College and St. Mark's Hospital. His current clinical work encompasses being director of GI physiology units at the University College Hospital, as well as providing a specialist clinical neurogastroenterology service. His research includes basic gut neurophysiology and the study of the etiology and management of functional gastroenterology disorders and of the, of the upper and lower gut. He currently supervises five postgraduate research fellows undertaking high degrees. He is the ex-chairman of the Neurogastroenterology section of the British Society of Gastroenterology and is the medical director of CORE, the UK gastrointestinal charity. He is obviously the current editor-in-chief of Frontline Gastroenterology, a specialist clinical journal. Dr. Emmanuel, thank you for doing this podcast to accompany your excellent Twitter debate in which you included some excellent slides which will be available as a link under this podcast. A summary of this debate will also be on the website. Dr. Emmanuel, I think most physicians would agree that managing and investigating somebody with difficult uh, irritable bowel syndrome can be one of the most challenging aspects of being a gastroenterologist at, at times. With that in mind and with your expertise in this area, can you summarize the current commonly used treatment pathways for IBS and, and your thoughts about these pathways and how, as doctors, we Im- Im- implement it? Thanks very much, Phil, and thanks for you for listening. The challenge, I think, is that there are two different sets of guidelines, almost, philosophically. One is the guideline that primary care uses, which is a sort of a de facto pragmatic guideline. And the second is an equally pragmatic guideline we use in secondary care. And the two don't really merge, except for the poor patient who is stuck in the middle, bouncing between these two uh, rather different ways of practice. So in primary care, what you have is an approach which says exclude red flag symptoms, identify causation uh, where possible, and then give a simple, essentially minimally better than placebo intervention, whether that's antispasmodic or something similar. In secondary care, we essentially take that model of investigation to a sort of hospital-based practice degree, exclude more obscure things which I'm sure we'll discuss shortly, um, and then essentially often do the same of discharging a patient back to primary care um, with some fairly simple dietary advice or slightly more powerful but equally often ineffective antispasmodics and similar. So the challenge is that the pathway is not symptom-focused and it's not patient-specific. It's a very generic pathway. So to me, that approach of taking a history is often a shortcut. I mean, I've got 
colleague GPs who tell me, you know, IBS is anything which has pain from your knees up to your nipples, and if I don't have an organic cause, then I'll call that IBS, and that plainly can't be right. We have to have a slightly more sophisticated way of looking at patients' gut symptoms. Thank you. Um, during the FG debate, you stated that um, IBS was not always what meets the eye. That was a phrase that, that was used in one, one or more of your slides. Can you clarify for our, our listeners exactly what you mean by this? So I think uh, in, when I use that expression, I, I think of it in two ways. One is that what meets the eye is often a, a sort of a young patient, often female, with sort of what becomes multiple complaints and sort of a heart sink. And what I'd like to convey in part is that there's more to this. There's a reason for thinking what are these patients' symptoms and what's the physiological basis behind those. Secondly, what's causing somebody to present right now? They've often had these symptoms for years. Uh, what's going on? And thirdly, what is it about their their makeup that will allow them to accept certain treatments and reject others? Some people may go for diet. Some people may not go for it. So to try and think around those three questions. So looking at it beyond that. But then the second aspect of that is also then to think about the conditions that we may encounter that may explain IBS symptoms. So I think the listenership will be pretty familiar with, for example, diarrhea, predominant patients, and the notion of bioassam absorption. But it's important to also think about microscopic colitis. I think we tend to imagine that these patients are somehow different, and we have that notion of very watery stool uh, as being the hallmark. But what we are increasingly recognizing is that patients with not the typically endlessly watery stool, um, there's a few indicators in terms of having other autoimmune diseases, having a slightly younger age, which may indicate greater greater risk of, uh, of this. And unfortunately, fecal caprotectin assays don't help identify these patients in the way they do IBD. And then in terms of constipation, I think we'll talk about this later, I hope, um, the importance of distinguishing simple IBS with constipation from those patients who have a pelvic floor problem, which is really the cause of their symptoms. The key thing being that those latter patients are very amenable to treatment. So the more than meets the eye to me really reflects the fact of not encompassing these patients as all being the same, sort of difficult to manage, not much I can really do, they're going to keep coming back kind of person, as well as thinking about the organic things that may be underlying these very common presentations. Thank you. Uh, again, uh, during the debate, you mentioned the use of low-dose tricyclic antidepressants and also neuroantidepressants, which I think people will find uh, quite important uh, in their own clinical practice. Can you summarize their use? Yes. The key thing, I think, is to say that these drugs have a very particular place, and their particular place is for pain. So if you sort of go right back to the beginning, you know, what is um, IBS and my sort of neurological hat on as I was sort of initially trained with, we sort of think about IBS as being a chronic pain syndrome. And in chronic pain syndromes, we have problems either with excessive peripheral excitability of nervous tissue or excessive perceptual connotation of that tissue. And tricyclic seem to work at both ends of that spectrum, as well as possibly having an effect on mood in slightly higher doses. So low-dose tricyclics, 10 to 25 milligrams of amitriptyline or nortriptyline if one wants to avoid the sedating effect, can be enormously helpful as sort of analgesic type effect. Um, 
the sedative effect of amitriptyline can also be a benefit to some IBS patients. But as I say, equally importantly, those patients who don't want a sedative effect or can't tolerate it, they are worth considering with nortriptyline, where the metabolites are not um, sort of sleep-inducing. So there is some flexibility there. And amongst the older group of tricyclics and tetracyclics, there's also drugs like clomipramine, which are often forgotten, which have a particular part to play again, and we often use them in patients with an element of obsessionality in there, again, the same doses of, sort of 10 milligrams. And then amongst the newer agents, the SSRIs and the SNRIs, we sort of look at uh, the effects of, on, the, on the gut. So one of the things that people often talk about with tricyclics is that they may be constipating. And I think it's clear that even at 25 milligram doses, Amitriptyline can exacerbate constipation. So its role primarily is in those patients who have a lot of pain, especially when it's pain with a diarrheal tendency. It's probably think twice about in patients who have sort of a strongly constipating uh, pain condition. Um, but with the SSRIs, um, it's clear that there are some which are much more gut neutral. So things like citalopram um, have been the most studied probably, which have really no effect on on gut motility in that way, so it a symptom. But the effects on pain, unfortunately, are not quite as impressive. So whereas the, the meta-analyses suggest that the number needed to treat um, are of the order of four, this has been very well reviewed by my colleague Alex Ford, who's had a previous Twitter debate and podcast to go with it, which I strongly urge uh, listeners to look at. Um, the number needed to treat for tricyclic is about between four and six. The number needed to treat for SSRIs is sort of eight. Eight-ish. So I think we're talking about a less um, a less manifest effect, but when it occurs, it's as profound as the tricyclic. Okay, thank you for that excellent summary. That's uh, really really helpful. Um, earlier on in this podcast, you mentioned the importance of pelvic floor examination and uh, abdominal examination. Can you briefly explain this in maybe greater detail to our listeners? So abdominal examination, I think it's critical. Obviously, it's part of that kind of rapport building, and for me, that's a really big deal, and the more complex a patient, the more important it is. So you may think, I've already seen the MRI, I've done the colonoscopy, what am I going to pick up? And of course, you're probably right, but I think it's part of that key factor. If you look at the patients who make complaints with IPS about their care, it's often centered around, I wasn't examined, I wasn't taken seriously. So I think that's important. as a general message. But specifically within that, I think one of the things that can be enormously helpful cytomene clinic is patients who have a, replica- a replication of their pain by increases in abdominal pressure. That's a sign of when you ask them to lay, raise their legs or to sit forward and they say, oh, that's a pain, that's a pain. That immediately, to me, helps tell me and reassure me that this is not an intra-abdominal, an intestinal cause of pain. And in terms of allowing me to be relaxed about future investigations, that is really very helpful to me. But the more important thing I think that I think all GI trainees and colorectal trainees should really be comfortable with doing is pelvic floor examination. And I think we have a wonderful opportunity to train in this, given how many PR examinations we do during a colonoscopy uh, list in a week. So if I can sort of go through it in a tiny bit of detail, is obviously the patient relaxed on the left-hand side, and as I say, the relaxed aspect is a really important one. Patients are often embarrassed, and we've got to sort of warm them up a bit to then get used to what the feeling of, as the fingers inserted, of feeling what the anal canal, that kind of ring of muscle, feels like, and then going just above that 
to feeling pubo rectalis, that kind of sling-shaped muscle, the U-shaped muscle, um, which has a slightly different texture because it runs in a different dimension, whereas the anal sphincter runs in a cylindrical dimension. This is a, a muscle which runs like a diaphragm across, so it feels different on the finger. Getting used to that feeling is a really important thing. Getting used to what I tend to do in my clinic is to ask patients to initially my finger is placed where it is, to ask them to contract, to pull up and hold on to something in their bowel, which they will often do quite willingly because they're a bit nervous. And you'll feel very dramatically that tightening both of the anal sphincter around your entire finger, but that U-shaped sling of muscle at the tip of your finger there, just above the sphincter, will will also contract and will you feel your whole finger being pulled up into the patient's body. And that's an important thing. And then when the patient relaxes, as well as the anal canal relaxing, the puberectalis muscle that you've been palpating, that U-shaped sling, will pull away from your finger. And if you ask them just to very, very gently, gently bear down, because no one wants to sort of break wind or worse, but what they will do, you'll find, is that that muscle will uh, actually pull away in a healthy individual, but in a person who's got so-called paradoxical contraction, what will happen is that muscle will contract as though you're pulling up. So it'll be a, literally a paradoxical contraction on attempting to void. And that's a very important sign. Simply then, once you've done that, then asking the patient just to gently bear down and see how much bellowing and descent of their pelvic floor there is, that's again a very helpful physical sign which we can all get used to seeing. So actually, pelvic floor examination is something which is worth getting used to doing. And I'd often say if you can find a colorectal surgeon in your hospitals who does a lot of these, you know, spending their time in their clinic can be enormously instructive because they often do it very well. Or urogynecologists, if you can find one to join the clinic in, they will often do these assessments, part of their pelvic floor assessment, very comprehensively. Thank you. That's a fantastic story and something that I'd not uh, heard before. So that's really helpful. Thank you very much. Finally, many of the listeners will be keen to hear from you as an expert in this area, your top tips for managing the difficult to treat patient with irritable bowel syndrome. Could you share a few of, uh, of these as to how you personally approach each patient and how, how you've become so successful at doing this? So I think, um, I mean, I hope it's always slightly vain, glorious things to say, but I think the key thing, and it sounds obvious when you say it, but is to essentially try and, I feel, drain the patient's well of symptoms. These patients have often been long-suffering. They may have seen a number of your colleagues, but it's really important, I think, to let them talk their symptoms out. And I spend a lot of time just making literally just little one or two word notes of the words they're using. So to me, then describing, so we tend to label constipation, diarrhea, bloating in our own terms, but patients will often reveal things. So they'll say constipation, and there's a bit of gentle prodding. They'll say, I don't feel empty, or I have to help myself, or it's hard pellets, or whatever. And ditto diarrhea can actually be a so masking uh, what is patient's incontinence, which they would, we, they would call diarrhea, and we would fall into. So I think the thing about exhausting the patient's symptoms, letting them talk with minimal prompt is a really big deal, and then using their language back to them. So the patients who use certain colloquial words for stools, I take their lead. The ones who use much more clinical words, I take their lead. I don't have a formula of saying, I believe this and I believe that, because I think it's very unique. So I hope I'm not overstating that history aspect, but it is a really critical one for me in terms of back to that thing about rapport and getting the patient on board. Um, the examination, I think we've sort of exhausted really the discussion about that, but then the other thing I would say is in women, 
being comfortable eventually if you want to become expert in this area in recognizing things like rectal seals and entral seals. That's probably not necessary for the general gastroenterologist, but for those of you who want to develop an expertise in this area, it's a really helpful uh, part of the assessment, very easily learned to help know when to use your surgical colleagues because sometimes there is a place for uh, surgery in these patients who've been mislabeled as having IBS, uh, often constipation predominant IBS, when actually there's something in their pelvic floor which can be surgically improved. So it's a small group but worth recognizing as a specialist. And then beyond that, in terms of other things, I haven't really commented on diet in this podcast, but I think there is a place for uh, diet in, above all, the correctly motivated patient who is in the right social place. A young person who has a young family being asked to go into a diet which is unique to them uh, while the rest of their family eat differently is really asking a lot and often won't succeed in the longer term. And the notion that things like a low FODMAPS diet can be instigated for a few weeks and then relaxed with the patient having a long-term cure yet to be proven and slightly counterintuitive given how the diet is meant to work. So we do have a place for diet but it's very much based on what the patient wants. Uh, and certainly we never use something like the low FODMAPS diet in my practice. For patients with constipation, we see our greatest success based also in the literature in patients with diarrhea and bloating as their dominant features. And then beyond that, I have to be honest with you and say that I almost never prescribe antispasmodics. The only time I really ever use uh, any of them is in patients very strongly described postprandial pain. But uh, that's a minority, so most of these patients where the pain is sort of related to gut function, I'm rather limited with that. But the drugs we've talked about, I won't repeat, but I think there are a few other things that are worth thinking about. So for patients in whom there's diarrhea and urgency, there are some nice publications and a randomized study looking at the use of 5-HT3 antagonists on Dancitron, showing you know, good efficacy in this population group in refractory cases when loparamide isn't able to help and you've excluded bile acid and absorption and microscopic colitis. There's a little sort of extra tip. These newer drugs that are out there, so things like lactotide and people using drugs like procalipride and lupiprostone, slightly off-label where there's constipation, I think there is a place, but the thing to remember is that they are not a panacea. They help about 10 to 15% of people beyond placebo, so realistically about one in five patients. But for me, what they offer is the opportunity to get into the patient's story again. These are often patients in whom there's a need for therapy and these new drugs which they may have heard about or which one may use offer a chance to enter into a dialogue of patients saying, well, let's try this, but if it doesn't help, then come back. And finally, after we've exhausted the kind of those therapies in the small group, there's an important place to think about having access to psychological therapies. Now, most of us aren't fortunate enough to have that on our doorstep, but establishing a link with a colleague and practice is so individual here that guidance is almost difficult, impossible to give because it's very much around the therapist's skill sets. So some will have a very strong hypnotherapeutic skill set, some will be more in CBT, some will be more in analysis. But they will tell you, I help this kind of patient. So classically, you know, constipation doesn't do as well with the therapy as other, other things do. Um, classically, CBT works better for patients where there's pain and, and constipation as a feature. So there are subgroups who uh, can, can be helped by psychological intervention, but it's very much a question of tailoring it and working with your local group. So for me, the success comes from, let's say, draining the history, doing some tailored examination, 
using medical therapies in a kind of cogent way, symptom-based rather than a, a generic IBS therapy. If I was going to say one thing about drug therapy, it would be don't think about a single tablet or a single diet or anything else which covers the base. IBS is a protein set of symptoms that patients report, and we have to be flexible, tackle the dominant symptom, and whittle away. With all that, having said all that, I, I would be happy if about half the patients who are referred to me with difficult IBS are made better. That's about our, our batting average. And if I can achieve that, I think that's reasonable for what is a complex condition with often other factors beyond what we can see in a, in a hospital consultation, even in a specialist institution. So I think we also have to, my final message would be, as treating physicians, be realistic yourself. Don't sit as ambitious goals to make everyone better, except that there are some people in whom there's something we can't yet help, and rather than discharging them and just with nothing else, and say, look, keep an open mind and sort of encourage them to use websites and the self-management plan, things like the IBS network advocate can be enormously helpful and supportive and complement what you've said rather than being, well, you failed me, so I'll try something else. It's more about trying to get medical therapy complemented in these refractory cases. Thank you once again, Dr. Emmanuel, for this excellent podcast and your excellent Twitter bait. We're really grateful for this, for all your time and effort, and also for all your, your work that you do for Frontline Gastroenterology. The slides from the Twitter debate will be available to look at at the end of this podcast, and so you can click on the link now. The next Twitter debate is on the 1st of 2016 is with Miss Kay Greveson, who's an IBD nurse specialist at the Royal Free Hospital on Tuesday the 19th of January 2016, between 8 till 9 p.m., and we'll discuss frontline IBD, travel and IBD, advice from the IBD passport. We hope you can join us then using the hashtag FDDebate.